0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
0: It's a long way to Tipperary, it's a long way to go, it's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know, goodbye Piccadilly.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to a History of the Great War interview. On this interview, I was joined by Dr. Chris Kemshaw to discuss his work on how the First World War is portrayed in video games, and how that can both help and hinder interest and understanding for the players of those games. Video games and their relation to history is a topic that is very personally important to me. When I was quite young, my family got a copy of Civilization II, and the game and, and the content in it sort of really ignited something in my brain. It is the first time I can remember transitioning from a piece of historical entertainment being just interesting to causing me to wanting to actively learn more about its subject matter. It was the Legion unit that sent me into this research spiral, which was quite a bit more challenging in the days before the internet. While Civilization two was the beginning, over the years and then decades, games based on history would occupy a large percentage of my gaming time, which was my primary hobby for many years. Age of Empires, Total War, Company of Heroes, and many, many more. It's only somewhat recently, honestly around the time that I started History of the Great War in 2014, that I began to consider how important the history showcased within video games really was. Video games, just like movies, TV shows, and books, have massive audiences, into the millions, and the consumers of video games represent a wide and incredibly diverse cross-section of society. For many, what they see in various video games might be their only exposure to that era of history, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Video games as a medium brings with it a special set of challenges when it comes to representing history, but there are challenges in every type of medium. Books, movies, and and television all have their own particular blends of strengths and weaknesses. It can often be tempting to underestimate the impact of content choices made within games and the impact those choices can have. There's probably an entire book to be written about how specific misconceptions about history have both fed into games made about those time periods and also how those games have them perpetuated and shifted those misconceptions. Dr. Kemshaw brings this up and maybe brings up the best example in the interview and also in his book as it relates to the First World War, and that's the idea that the commanders in the war, especially on the Western Front, were simply idiots for doing what they did. This incredibly negative view of their actions is something I've argued against in the podcast several times. Not because they did not make bad decisions. They made some real bad decisions. But because often those criticisms use knowledge of later events to criticize earlier decisions. We know that the Battle of the Frontiers would be an absolute debacle for the French. But they certainly did not believe that would happen. And they had good reasons for those beliefs. Beliefs based on assumptions of what combat would look like in a future war that just so happened to be wrong. Video games then provide the player with the ability to go back in time with the knowledge that those attacks failed and route history around them and onto a different path. This can also feed into the idea that, especially in the First World War, it was one person making decisions and one person driving events, which even when decision-making power rested with one person, there were whole hosts of people feeding them information and even more people who had to execute on those decisions. These nuances are often lost when decisions are reduced to hexes, and all those individuals who can and will make mistakes are reduced to little square chits. These are just a few of the challenges presented by taking history and representing it in an interactive and player-driven medium. I think that such criticisms are the easy thing to level against games that are set within a period of history. In the same way that it's easy to criticize movies that play a bit fast and loose with the source time period. I'm looking at you, Patriot. It gets more interesting and involved when you start thinking about why specific content decisions were made, and what that says about events like the First World War within society. How games represent the popular thinking on the First World War at the time of their creation is an interesting piece of the evolving perceptions of the war. How do they represent the puzzle of the Western Front? Do they fall into portraying the military leaders in that classic and dated lions-led-by-donkeys mentality? Is it an English-language game that moves the narrative outside of the typical list of topics, the, the naval war of Somme and Yper and Gallipoli? Video games, for all their positives and negatives, are rarely going to push the understanding of history forward in any real way, but they can provide us a glimpse into how events of the past are viewed and interacted with at a snapshot in time. Are they perfect? <laughs> Absolutely not. But often, although just like every other form of entertainment, not always, they can use their position as one of the most popular and pervasive entertainment products of the 21st century to remind a new generation that the First World War is an event worth remembering, and maybe just an event worth learning more about. I have first-hand experience with how the content of video games can greatly impact people with little knowledge of specific time periods in history i received multiple emails, Facebook comments, and tweets over the years where people found the podcast because they were playing a video game, and it ignited an interest in the First World War, and they wanted to find out more information. It came from people playing Valiant Hearts and wanting to learn more about the French experiences, and people who had played one of the many strategic and operational strategy games and wanted to find out more about the global situation, people who picked up the first-person shooter Verdun on Steam and people who had no idea that the Italian Front existed before Battlefield 1. Those types of things are happening all the time. There is somebody out there always having their Civilization II Legion moment just like I did. Not everything in video games is helpful to the understanding of history. Some of it is actively harmful, which they should be held accountable for, just like any other form of popular entertainment. But they can be a gateway to further understanding, and hopefully that means they are a net positive. On a programming note, during the following interview, I ask a question about Star Wars, about 43 minutes into the podcast runtime. If you are not here for Star Wars talk, which is completely understandable, considering this is not a Star Wars podcast, we do not return to a First World War discussion for the remainder of the episode. I will not feel bad in any way if you just hit the Marcus Play button and move on. With that said, let's jump into the interview. Let's jump into the interview. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and
0: journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps over and to the top of Great Mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the
1: Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a History of the Great War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Krish Kemshaw, the author of The First World War in Computer Games and British, French, and American Relations on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918. Dr. Kemshaw is also currently working on a book that has nothing to do with any of that, but we'll get to that later. Uh, hello, Dr. Kemshaw, How's it going today?
0: Ah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's, it, it's good. I've been looking forward to this.
1: Excellent, excellent. Um, So in the past, and sort of the reason I guess you're here, is that you've taught an entire course on the First World War at the university level uh, that used video games as part of its content. How did that get started? Uh, What do you look for in the gaming experiences that you chose to feature?
0: The, the starting point for it to an extent had always been I'd, I'd done snapshots of it so when I taught the first world war previously at other universities you know there'd be a big course on the first world War I might if I was lucky get a week in on computer games or tell my students to go away and play some computer games and in those instances it was the, the focus was often on something okay this might not necessarily be the best game but is there an element about it that I think is interesting or indicative of a wider trend. Now, a game that I used to use a lot until, depressingly, they took it down, is a game that I hate with every fiber of my being and love at the same time. Um, it's a game called Trench Warfare um, that used to be on the BBC educational website, and it's the most it was the most ahistorical nonsense, as well as being a genuinely bad computer game um, you're ever likely to encounter. But it was a perfect way of examining a particular popular view of the First World War in that it's all death, it's all horror, and it can't be won. Because the game itself couldn't be won. You get to the final level, and it couldn't be completed. And then the game would go, only a monster would try and complete this level after this. At which point, you automatically start hammering the replay button. Because you can't tell a computer game you can't do something. And the game just continually judges you for it. Um, so I used to get my students play things like that to then come back and go okay let's talk about the popular understanding of the first world war because that game was awful and it was annoying and i kind of like annoying my students in weird ways like that um so it kind of it played into all of those things and then where i was teaching at the Bader international study center um most recently i had the opportunity of doing an entire course about first world war computer games and this was something i'd never had the, the chance to do before so i thought okay How would I break this down? And it was things like, okay, I want to do a week on, you know, soldiers fighting and killing. Um, And the way that that would work is there would be two seminars in that week, one of which would be focused on computer games. So, you know, go away and play Battlefield 1 or go away and play Valiant Hearts or go away and play Verdun and interact in some way with images of soldiers and images of death, images of killing. we'll come back and we'll talk about it and then in the second seminar is okay now let's break out some archival documents let's look at what soldiers actually thought about their wartime services Um, and how do these two ideas the computer game portrayal and the archival explanation interact with each other where were the difficulties where were the tensions and that was effectively the model for the course um, of finding games like that that could be indicative of wider moments be it soldiers or be it race or be it empire or be it flight, you know, something you could hook onto to then talk about both games and the realities of that wartime experience in
1: whatever it, form it took. Interesting. So it's interesting that, that you were able to sort of build video games into a curriculum like that and use it to compare how things are shown in, in modern media to, to maybe how they really were. Video games are not typically a media used in history curriculum, as far as I know. Um, Do you think that's kind of just a function of how relatively new they are as a form of media? Is there some other reason or is this just like a generational problem that, you know, in a a decade may be very different?
0: I I think the answer is all of the above. Um, So, I mean, the first thing to acknowledge is that where I was doing this, whilst I was teaching it in England... um, it was as part of a study abroad center for a Canadian university. And North American university teaching is very, very different to British or European teaching. To the extent that my understanding of it is that in uh, North American universities, um, when it comes to doing elements of curriculum design and like once it's signed off, the, the lecturer is basically God. They can do whatever they want. And I have my course signed off and as a result, I did whatever I wanted. Um, at English universities, you've got to jump through like 12 different committees um, before you're allowed to even, like, you know, draw a picture of what you might want to teach a student. Um, so the the North American model gave me an awful lot more kind of freedom in those in those ways. But history departments as a whole, certainly in Britain, despite the fact that, you know, I've got, I've worked at a variety of them, I've got friends working at them, that there is an element that they tend towards the conservative with a small C. Um and computer games are new. And I mean, even that I don't necessarily agree. I'm actually not gonna immediately contradict with myself. Computer games are not new. We, I'm 37 years old, I'm gonna be 38 this year. And I have had interactions with computer games for almost my entire life. Um, they're not new in the sense that they got invented yesterday, but they, I think they lack an element of kind of institutionally applied validity to them i mean you know some history departments and some kind of elements of history are already just getting on board with studying film and television computer games is way too early a, a, a medium for such a thing so there is resistance to them i'm hoping that that type of thing will kind of die out a little bit i mean you know there's a whole generation of historians like my age or younger who've only ever known Computer games and believe them to be a valuable resource for the study of history, but also all of our students play them. If for no other reason than that, um, we should be examining them in 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 universities. You know, if there was a, a whole cohort of students coming up who'd all read the same history book, um, universities would expect their staff to have at least a passing familiarity with what is in that history book, um, and. A lot of people, I would imagine, who have studied the First World War at university recently, and certainly the people who have taught it at university recently, would have been interacting with students who played Battlefield 1, because, you know, damn near everybody played Battlefield 1 who was interested in history and was a computer gamer. Um, so I'd like to think that that's going to get better. Um, you know, I'd like to think it's going to get better in time for me to have a, you know, a long and burgeoning career. Um, but if not, maybe, maybe the people coming up behind are going to have a whale of a time. Um, but you'd like to think it's something he's going to give at some point.
1: Um maybe your book will be one of those texts that constantly gets cited and works forever now <laughs> from yeah, now like, like twenty oh, years after th- I'm dead. This person, like fifty years ago, they knew what was up. Too bad they, yeah. you know,
0: Yeah, if only he was before. alive to see it today.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I love the Battlefield one example, you know, as a person who started a, a World War One history podcast in twenty fourteen and also has been a big fan of Battlefield and History games in general um i had multiple people reach out to me of like oh yeah i found your podcast because i played battlefield one and i didn't even know that they fought in italy and uh, i now i've learned so much it was uh it was a really interesting experience to be on the receiving end of people who had played that game and wanted to learn more yeah battlefield one is
0: a really good example of a gateway game i mean you know let's be honest a, a fair chunk of the Player base played the game, enjoyed it, then went on and got on with their lives. But we're talking about millions and millions of people here. So, a significant proportion, even 1% of those people, is still, um, you know, 40,000 people potentially, if you take it from 4 million downwards, um, would have then gone away and found out something about the First World War. And I had, um, it was anecdotal, so I wasn't able to kind of properly include it in anything. Um, But during the centennial years, the Imperial War Museum did a big project called um, Lives of the First World War, where you could go in and they basically created like a holding page for every soldier who served in the British Army, and family members could upload photos, and diary stuff, and biographies and the like, and get this whole kind of rounded image of an individual set amongst, you know, five million other individuals. And somebody at the Imperial War Museum told me that when Battlefield 1 came out, the Lives of the First World War website got the most hits it had ever had by people who began going into the lives of the First World War and typing in the names of the characters that they'd played in Battlefield 1. Now, they're all fictional, so they didn't find anything. But that alone is a clear indication that there was an an interest there to go and find more.
1: That's really interesting to hear. Uh, Maybe there was some collaboration that could have been done on that to make sure that those results came back to something.
0: Oh God, the, the the number of, honestly, the number of missed opportunities that have sailed by in regards to First World War computer games and kind of museums and First World War academia and the like is, I mean, it's not surprising, but it is a little kind of, oh yeah, that would have been great. But that was, that was years ago. That opportunity is gone. Maybe next
1: time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of the items you, you discuss in your book is that First World War on the strategy game side of things, instead of on maybe the first person shooter side, uh, gives players a chance to kind of play out the war correctly or what we consider today to be more correct than what they did or the wrong way that they did it at the time. Um, it's often leveled at, at leaders, especially military leaders at that time, that they were you know, doing things wrong. Uh, could you talk about a few examples of how they do this? And do you think they do it well? And do you think it it provides like a hmm, productive way to look at the history?
0: Uh, that is a really good question. I think to begin answering with your final question first, uh, not particularly. I think is I don't think it particularly gives uh, a productive uh, way of dealing with it because the 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 concept and the portrayal of any strategy game against the reality of you know whether we're talking you know Rome Total War all the way up to Hearts of Iron or something like that is always completely kind of removed from the reality of you know Caesar's battles or commanding the Soviet Union during the Second World War because strategy games give you a level of oversight, power and control that cannot possibly exist I mean, you see all of your battles from the air um, in real time, you know you, you want to do something, you send an order to a guy and they do it immediately, it's not a kind of a case of okay, alright, my uh, my right flank of Roman legionnaires is starting to cave in a little bit, so I'll send in some reinforcements I'll just send a runner um, who will you know, gallop across the screen in real time to deliver the order or anything like that. It's always instantaneous. Um, But what ends up happening in First World War versions of these strategy games is you approach them with this lines led by donkeys starting point, you know, particularly around figures like uh, Field Marshal Haig of a man who is popularly considered to be incompetent, at best murderous at worst, um, and that the First World War ended... Not through any kind of actual military victory, but basically because everyone was a bit tired and the Germans were slightly more tired and therefore they lost. There's a a brilliant quote by um, I think it's by Dennis Showalter talking about the the myth of attrition warfare, which um, posits that um, if you to believe that the way that attrition is written about that, the war will end when the last three surviving uh, French and British soldiers totter on aged legs across no man's land to bayonet the last two surviving Germans. It's that kind of level of, of of approach to it that the First World War is not won by military means. It's won in spite of the efforts of generals. Therefore, if you now place a player into this scenario, can you actually know? Can you solve a problem like the Western Front? Um, can you be smarter than Haig? Can you be smarter than Foch or uh, Ludendorff or any of these guys? And what they then give you the opportunity to do is basically to rewrite history. Um, it's a, there's a you know there's a huge counterfactual element to these um, strategy games um, where you know you don't want to get bogged down in trenches or you know you know that tanks and planes are the thing to do. So why not just build more of those? Uh, why didn't you know why weren't they building tanks and planes in, in 1914? Well, you know tanks hadn't been invented yet. Um, so you end up with that kind of time ahistorical uh, asynchronous element. But what I think the the weird elements of strategy games is, is that rather than really allowing the player to challenge the idea of Lines led by donkeys, they just basically reproduce it. Because I know I know it's not real. I know it's a computer game. I know that they're little pixel guys. But I swear to God, I have never cared about the lives of the men I've sent into battle on any strategy game I have ever played. I don't care that you know. Dave on the front line's got a wife and a family at home and little Timmy hopes to see him for Christmas. If if Dave's got to die to move me five inches closer to my objective, then Dave is going to die. And what is that, if not the the popular satirical commentary of First World War generals, that you will just throw waves and waves of your own men into a problem? There's always more that can be built. There's always more lives that can be churned out from a little pixelated factory somewhere and you you reproduce this Hagian image of the first world war general just throwing men at a problem and i find that really weird and kind of a little unsettling
1: that, that's really good and and you fall into because uh, just thinking about the thought process for a lot of strategy games it's not so much what happens to to your people it's you're criticizing them because even though they 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 were killed they didn't take enough of the enemy with them to, to make your plans work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would have won that battle if my men had shown a little bit more devotion to the greater victory. Regardless of whether or not they were being shelled by shrapnel at the time, if they'd have just, you know, taken a little bit more of the French offensive um, approach, you know, strapped on the bayonets and just gone for blood, then maybe this whole thing would have panned out differently. As a result, none of them are going home for Christmas. But it's fine because they're only pixels and it doesn't matter. In the same way that, you know, they're just figures on a on a... On a casualty register, it doesn't matter. This this weird echo backwards and forwards of you are uncaring about the lives of those under you because they're not real in some way.
1: Interesting. It almost like um, makes you think you are being incredibly different than the past. You are fixing all the problems of the past when in reality, because it's a computer game and there are sort of shortcomings in that, it makes you fall into it even more. Because you are trying to skip ahead on solutions that they didn't have at the time. You you thought you are, you know that planes are the way to go, so you put a bunch of time and effort in, into planes or in-game resources into planes, but you can only accelerate it so much, you don't have everything else around it, and then also you just don't care about the people that you're sending in. Yeah, and
0: uh, you, you, as you say, you literally try and game the outcome of it, because you know, oh, equally, you don't want to just sit there not fighting any battles. That's not the point of a strategy game. Even whilst you're waiting for, you know, your 500th plane to roll off of the factory or your 2000th tank, you're going to you're gonna want to get stuck in at some point. So you'll fight a pointless battle because it gives you something to do. Um, and, you know, you can try and kind of min-max the statistics in that of it, but at some level, you're going to end up fighting battles and people are going to end up getting killed. Um, you can tell yourself that you're doing it because... You know, you've got a genius plan and a genius strategy, but you know that that's what the guys at the time would have thought as well. You know, they were they were fighting battles in a in a in a manner that was to to kind of quote um, uh, the Klaus Witt's, um approach of of strategy is of you know the the use of the battle for the purposes of the war. Um, you know, you're going to fight a battle because it's going to give you a favourable outcome in the wider in the wider theatre. Well, I have a lot of battles in strategy games they have not all been for the purposes of the wider war sometimes they've been out of spite or because i'm I, you know i need to trim down my army somewhat and i want better troops and if that means that some of my lesser troops have to have to die in service for uh for my aims and that's what you're going to do but it, yeah it ends up as that kind of weird. I mean, you know you can go overly philosophical I, I, and you know as i said before it is it is a computer game it isn't real but I do find that a really weirdly interesting dynamic that actually it reproduces that, which it's telling the player it will circumvent.
1: Um, along with that, you know, when I think about things that the first world war video games do are bad at portraying or, or, portray quite badly, I think of kind of two things. And you mentioned time in your book, you mentioned time and you kind of talked about shortcomings with time. I think about artillery um, and how, I feel like no computer game has ever gotten First World War artillery correct or right, probably on purpose because it creates gameplay problems. Um, are there other frequent shortcomings that you think video games as a medium could perhaps improve on when they look at the First World War and, and could maybe help to better move towards a, a better understanding of history?
0: I think your artillery example is a really, really good one because you know if, if artillery was depicted really, really well, it would end a lot of first-world war computer games, particularly first-person shooter ones, because you are going to go over the top, and then something very, very horrible is going to happen to you. And reload and try again. Um, there are there are other things that um, computer games, particularly first-world war computer games, are bad at, but they often tie into wider societal issues. You know, as a, in, in regards to kind of popular culture, or popular memory, that is all equally bad at explaining. And the one that always comes predominantly to my mind is what is the war for and why does it end um now we can remove computer games immediately from the equation and ask you know oh is is kind of british society or american society particularly good at explaining why the first world war happens and why it ends and i think the answer to both of those is probably no um you either end up with an element of um kind of christopher clark's The sleepwalkers of everybody kind of fell into each other at the top of some stairs, rolled down in at the bottom, there was a war. Um, and they didn't really understand what was happening. Or a kind of that kind of wider alliance system. I mean, you know, you might get a bit of Fritz Fischer about, you know, it was the Germans' fault, really. But there's no real understanding within our culture of why the, the war happens, except for, you know, it's an accident, it's a tragedy, it should never have happened. And it ends because everybody's tired. Um, now, neither of those two things are really true. Um... You know there, there's plenty of historiography explaining why or varying kind of interpretations of why the first world war begins and lots about the kind of the military uh battles and particularly the hundred days that bring about its conclusion but first world war computer games don't really include any of that um even games like um battlefield one basically pay passing memo to oh you know it was a clash of empires so well yeah but there's, a, there's an awful lot of reasons for why this conflict is happening. Um, but because it's difficult to explain and it's complicated, what you end up doing is basically ignoring it altogether and just zooming in on, you know, this soldier in this trench doesn't care why the war happened. He's just there to live through it. Um, which is, you know, true up to a point, but these are societies that get mobilized in 1914 and 1915. You know, those soldiers. Are aware of why it is that they're there, particularly the French ones. You know their country's been invaded. Um, the German ones are, particularly after the the, the failures uh, to knock um, France and, and Russia out the war early on, have you know very clear reasons why they're sticking at it. The British have reasonably clear reasons why they're sticking at it. But computer games are bad at explaining this, so they just basically sidestep it altogether. And as the other kind of half of that bracket, is it then terrible explaining why the war ends. Um, it just seems to be that, again, everyone got tired. The last guy's standing and the last guy's standing and they're the winners. And I think to be able to do a better service to telling the stories that computer games want to tell, they need to get better at, at framing the context of where these stories are taking place. Um, you can tell a story about a clash of empires, about you know the Entente Cordial and the central powers and fears of you know imperial collapse or channel ports or any of those things without you know, having to get into the actual weeds of it. But if you can create a time period, a context when these things are real, it makes it an awful lot easier for you to then talk about what it's like to live in those circumstances. You know, what does it mean to be a French soldier on the Western Front in a time period, say 1916, you're fighting at Verdun endlessly, your family's living in occupied France, or you haven't been home on leave in a a year or so. You know, there is narrative dramatic potential in that. But you only get the narrative and dramatic potential if you can frame why it's happening at all. And I I desperately hope that computer games will get better at that because they've never had any problems talking about why the Second World War began or why the Second World War ended. I mean, admittedly, you know, it's a a sexier conflict, if you want. Um, But the, 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 the example still stands. If you can do it for one, you should be able to do it for the other.
1: It's interesting. I've never really thought about it that way in that, you know, Video games have shortcomings in how they portray portray history of any period, First World War included. But for the First World War, uh, it is kind of just a lens through which the common perceptions of the war in general are portrayed incorrectly. It's sort of modified maybe by video game realities or computer game realities. Uh, But that's interesting. I've never really thought of it that way.
0: Yeah, I think it's that kind of, that reproduction of of things that we kind of already know and i i having gone through all of that me saying oh you know i think computer games need to do a better job the fact that you know most media does a pretty bad job of explaining why the war happens and why it ends it's entirely possible, and I've said this in kind of other bits and pieces, that actually the responsibility of this might in on historians rather than computer game developers or, or media creators. Um, if we're not doing a good enough job of explaining these things, we can't then be a little bit upset when media doesn't properly reproduce it to our, to our satisfaction. Um, you know, if we we're going to rely on you know, EA dice to tell history for us, then we're going to have to live with what we get. Um, and we're going to have to be happy with it, if, particularly if we're not going to get involved in the process. You know, EA Dice could come and ask us, but and you know, that'd be that'd be nice given some of the things that have appeared in historical computer games over the not kind of particularly recent past or not too distant past, rather. Um, that you know, maybe talking to historians might save you an awful lot of bad press, guys. Uh, just a thought. Um, but. Yeah, in, unless historians actually get involved in the process or make themselves available for the process, then all of this information that we carry around in our head or our incredibly expensive books isn't going to make it into the into the mainstream. Um, and I think that was a kind of a wiser thing that appeared out of the out of the first world war centenary. I know a kind of various historians, um, you know, some of whom, like kind of even friends and colleagues and the like, were left a bit dissatisfied by the centenary because they didn't think that the the, the the vision that existed in popular culture or popular memory of the First World War was shifted enough. And I think some of that is absolutely true. And I think some of that can be said kind of attributed by the fact that, you know, sometimes people don't want to hear it. Um, it's very difficult to tell the, the public something, you know, a dramatic change in history that they're not willing to get on board with. But also some of it, you know, myself included, I wonder how available we made ourselves and our research to try and move these things forward enough um and you know if there's if there is an argument to be made that the first world war centenary didn't do enough to change the way the people in britain or europe or the world thought about the first world war then you know some of that responsibility has got to land on the shoulder of first world war historians because you know if it didn't move enough it's because we didn't move it enough
1: as a person who has very delicately handled a book on my desk while researching (laughs) yeah maybe maybe availability of of research maybe is not the best
0: yeah and that's why things like these podcasts uh, are actually really good fun because you know we're the best will in the world you know if anybody wants to go out and buy uh my book um i want to get out like a you know a second mortgage or something before you before you go and do it then by all means please please be my guest but in this sense we can have a conversation about stuff we can you know i can tell people about some of the ideas that appear in the book without them having to go out and you know sell a child in order to buy it um which you know it's got to be a good thing for everybody
1: uh i realize now kind of as we're talking we're 26 plus minutes in here we've been very negative so so i wanted to yeah. throw a question about positivity about sort of computer games and what they bring to understanding history i think uh because of my own past, um, you know, kind of go off on a little anecdote here. Uh, as a child, uh, my interest in history kind of started with computer games. Uh, Civ two, Civilization two, is the first game I remember really connecting with and wanting to learn more about the Legionnaires that I was building as the Romans, for example. And, and then that went through Total War. That went through several other games sort of over the years. And so I, I think of engagement. I think of just raw numbers of people thinking about and interacting with history as one of the big benefits of, of, of computer games. Are, are there other ones that you can think of that you know aren't quite so negative about the, the media that's created?
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I similarly have a story of Civilization 2. I absolutely adored that game to the extent I, I didn't play another Civilization game until like Civilization 5 because it just wasn't Civilization
1: 2. Um, exactly the same. I still haven't played another one in any real way.
0: Yeah, um, because the classic was so, was so beautiful. And I think and you're, you're right, we have been fairly negative. And you know, this is going to come up, I suspect, in a, in a future question. It's that kind of, you, you criticize something because you love it. Um, you know, I love computer games. I love many, many First World War computer games. Um, and that kind of critique of them comes from a, from a place of, a, of engagement. And there are some things that First World War computer games have done fabulously well. Um, you know, I, there are lots and lots of things that we could say about Battlefield 1. But the thing that I often say is that if somebody had come up to me at the beginning of the centenary and said the most popular media event of the next four years will involve people, millions and millions and millions of people playing as an Italian soldier fighting the um, Austro-Hungarians in the Dolomites and loving it, I'd have laughed in your face. And That is never, ever going to happen. No one cares about the Italian front in modern European popular culture of the First World War, but the geographic spread of games like Battlefield 1 has been fantastic. You know, Verdun did the Western Front, then they moved on to Tannenberg with their expansion for the Eastern Front. They're now doing one um, about um, the Italian Front as well. You know, the geography of the First World War is being expanded by these games in ways that has never happened in any other form of media. Um, And I think that has to be acknowledged and appreciated that you know the first time that many people are going to find out that italy was part of the first world war is playing battlefield one um that's fantastic i you know I, my friend uh van der wilcox does um italian um histories of the first world war um and i know that you know she's found that a hugely interesting kind of kind of moment um first world war games have also told some beautiful stories i will go to my deathbed praising valiant hearts with my whole heart. Um, It is a beautiful, gorgeous, moving portrayal of um, experiences in the First World War. Far more interesting and emotionally resonant than I think many other forms of, of modern media have ever come close to in dealing with the conflict. The way that they took the events of the First World War focusing largely on on the french aspect what i think made it so successful was the fact that most people in britain don't know anything about the french experience of the first world war which means that there are particular moments in that game without getting into spoilers that are going to be deeply shocking
1: to the game Uh, game yes absolutely and i also agree on the french experiences maybe not getting enough uh exposure in english again as a person who has tried to read about french experiences and only speaks english it is a shockingly short sort of uh, a source pool to pull from.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've, I've got a book for that if, uh, <laughs> if it's of interest <laughs> for you uh, for the French experience. But yeah, you know, the, the the British popular memory of the war is focused largely on five white guys called George. Um, there's no room for the allies. There's barely it. It's up until the centenary there was scarcely any acknowledgement that the British Empire had been a thing during the war, um, which means that. You know when you play through certain levels of valiant hearts and you see what's happening in the french army and what that means for some of the characters it comes completely out of nowhere for you it has a tremendous kind of emotional punch to it um and that is a a really interesting aspect of the first world war computer game ability to play on the the blind spots and the, effectively the kind of societal ignorance not in a bad way of societal ignorance you know so it's suggesting that you know the the gamers have done something wrong, but if you haven't read about it and you haven't been taught about it, then you know it doesn't exist for you. That's fine. Um, you know, everybody's ignorant about something until they find out about it for the first time. And that's what Valiant Hearts was able to do. And there are even some really interesting games coming up. There's um a game coming up I can't remember what it's called, but it's been developed by a Polish studio, I think, which is focused on being a doctor in a at a casualty clearing station. Um, the idea is, you know, Computer games are normally about how many soldiers can you kill, but now how many soldiers can you save? What a fantastic idea for a computer game. What a fantastic idea for something for a way to to approach the first world war um than through you know can you save the lives of soldiers coming back from the front? you know I imagine when we play it, there'll be any number of kind of slightly historical issues and accuracy moments in an authentic one, but I don't care. I'm already super interested in this. Idea of a way to interact with the First World War, and if again, you know, if one percent of the audience who play it go out and read, you know, a book by Jessica Meyer or by uh, Joanna Bourne um, or, or, or similar, then that's just a huge win for the historical field.
1: I could could not agree more, for sure. Um, do you think you know a, a lot of what we've talked about with the positives? There are sort of in these very zoomed in experiences. But I think the bulk of probably first world war set computer games are more of the strategy variety, where I kind of find it a slightly more difficult to find good uh, good history or good learning opportunities. In do 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 you have similar problems, or I could totally be missing something?
0: Yeah, I think I think I do up to a point. What I think is really interesting is to the extent to which strategy games did, weren't a thing during the centenary. I can't think of any that were really... I mean, there was the, there were mods in that that was made, but I can't think of any First World War strategy games really developed during the First World War Centenary. It was all a mix of things like uh, Battlefield 1 or Done, or more kind of narrative adventure games like um, Valiant Hearts. And I wonder if that's going to become an ongoing trend, because my big fear at the end of Centenary was that everyone, like a bunch of computer games, well, well, you know, that was fun for four years, but let's go back to the Second World War again. It's like, oh, God, please don't. Um, but what appears to be coming out is that you know whilst the likes of Battlefield you know wandered back off into the Second World War and the like, and I have no doubt that in ten years' time they'll end up back in you know John Snow in space, whatever that horrendous future warfare monstrosity was. Um, that I can't even remember if it was a Battlefield or a Call of Duty game. It was it was something dreadful. Um, that the narrative potential of the First World War will, will endure, and I, that might squeeze strategy games out um, of of the kind of the the, the field for it. Um, it's already a bit of a tough ask for strategy games because you either go, you know, I'm gonna make a historical strategy game. Oh God, here come Creative Assembly with the Total War franchise. They're gonna crush me like a bug unless I sink more money into this than I will ever own in my entire life. Or, I, you know what? I'll take a slightly different approach to it. And, you know, it's not gonna be about controlling units in real time. It's gonna be about an overview and oh, now, fantastic. I've landed in Paradox is uh, Hearts of Iron and they're gonna crush me like a bug. Uh, unless I spend more money than I possibly got. So I wonder if it's a, tre- a wider trend in, in strategy games that actually these kind of behemoth, Total War, Hearts of Iron franchises are have squeezed them out already of a lot of, um, a lot of their kind of space for this type of stuff. And the centenary was just a reflection of that, that there just wasn't room or an interest or a desire to try and tackle the first world war in a strategy game. Yeah,
1: I guess, and I guess, you know, when it comes to appeal, you have, so, you have a, a, a big mountain to climb, I think, in terms of how you're representing at a strategy level, at sort of a strategic level or operational level, how you're representing things and how much the Western Front can move, if you want to be at all historical, about how you're doing things.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big problem. I think it comes up a bit in the book that, you know, try to actually recreate trench warfare as by creating a, a scenario where nothing moves is is a challenge for strategy game designers. I don't think they've come close to, to cracking it yet.
1: Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and I feel like a, a lot of the ones I've played or I've watched, played, or interacted with really fall back on that attrition piece of it where it's, oh, you're just going to keep putting chits on the board as long as you've got reserves until you're both out and then you can finally do something.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's the, the, the computer gaming of, of, of attrition warfare.
1: Uh, so, so that's, that's great. Uh, we've had a lot of great conversations about the First World War. Let's talk about your next project. As a fan of... I've been a lifelong fan of Star Wars. But I will say my reevaluations of Star Wars, and perhaps the history and, most importantly, its politics has maybe slightly soured me uh, on the old star wars over the last several years so what is this new book you're working on and how did you get from first world war to star wars
0: so um yeah we finally move on to some serious historical scholarship (laughs) um so yeah the, the the new book which i am finishing at the moment as in it will be i don't want to date the podcast but it will be submitted within weeks of this recording um is called history and politics in the Star Wars universe, and again, it has to be kind of pointed out that, much like the computer games, it's the critique is coming from a place of love. Um, you know, I love and adore Star Wars, um, and you know, grew up with it, similar to you. Um, but before we get into the content of it, you know, how did I get to it? Effectively, through first world war computer games. So I did the the book that we've been talking about, and I did an article that kind of came out at the same time called Pixel Lions, which was about the portrayal of soldiers um in first of all computer games and that got picked up by the great war youtube channel who i imagine a, a fair number of your listeners will have heard about and they shared it and the the reads for it went you know through the roof um you know thousands of people read it i um, mean it flagged up all sorts of kind of um sirens and alarms at, at taylor and francis on routledge and their history editor said oh you know this article did really well have you got any other ideas for things you might want to you know write about and i was like well are you talking like history things or geeky things and he was like yeah whichever it's like well i do have a geeky idea that i'd like to write about um and it was uh, it originally it was a kind of a military history of the star wars world but it kind of morphed into a, a proper examination of what does when when star wars talks about things or portrays things what is it actually talking about so obviously the original trilogy um as depicted by george lucas is and I say, you know, obviously, to a degree, this kind of surprises some people. Um, uh, and I'm saying, obviously, from you know, the fact I've submersed myself in the literature for the past three years um, or so, is an anti-American Vietnam film. Um, the rebels are the Viet Cong and the Galactic Empire is the United States military in Vietnam. And it's 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 a film about um, kind of technological fascism crushing freedom fighters. That's the original Star Wars trilogy. But... Star Wars is so much more than the cinema, you know, it's the whole expanded universe, it's the books, it's the comics, it's the games, and scholarship has tended to just focus on the films, which is fine, because, you know, there's loads to say about the films, there's loads to say about the prequels, there's loads to say about the the new trilogy, but the world of Star Wars has always been so much more, and in the 1990s, um, you know, the the prequel trilogies don't start until 1999, um, you get hundreds of books And comics and computer games, all of which are talking about real world history, but in different ways. They're talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union and America emerging as the world's great superpower. And they're talking about the Rwandan genocide and the massacre at Srebrenica. And then the the 9-11 happens and they're talking about George W. Bush and the war on terror. And you get that in the prequels as well. So the book is basically examining how Star Wars repurposes the history that's happening at the time to talk about the things that he wants to talk about. Um, And so today, even before we've been recording this, I've been finishing off my chapter on the Galactic Empire because the argument that I make in the book is the Galactic Empire is the most important long-running institution or reference point in the entirety of Star Wars. Everything else can largely stay the same. It's the empire, it's the portrayal of fascism that is constantly evolving through Star Wars to always make it relevant. Um, you get the fascism of the of the original trilogy, which uses Nazi imagery to talk about America. You get the fascism of the prequel trilogy, which talks about George W. Bush utilizing the global war on terror for his own nefarious political purposes. You get the fascism of the um, sequel trilogy, which is all about kind of Nazis escaping to Argentina and then coming back to wreak havoc again, but set in the age as it then turns out the, the age of Trump um, and the age of kind of burgeoning um, authoritarianism around the world, not just in America, but in Europe and in Russia and um, in, in South America as well. So Star Wars is constantly reacting and repurposing everything that's going on at the time. And, you know, sometimes it will use, you know, a guy in what looks like a Nazi uniform to talk about it, but it's probably talking about something that just happened very, very recently. And the books and the comics and the games often had such a quick turnaround And the the authors of them had so much freedom that they're talking about stuff almost in real time. You know, you're maybe six months to a year after something happens, it starts to appear in a book or a novel or a comic, um, which is fast in the world of publishing. Um, And that's the that's the the aim of the book to look at all of these different things and say, you know, it doesn't matter if you know this book isn't canon anymore at the time that it came out. When, you know, this book is talking about um, uh, a horrible race of um, aliens that kind of stormed in and horribly tortured everybody and committed a massacre and, you know, the galaxy couldn't stop them. The the, the military was was slow to to, to do anything and the Jedi just stood and watched by. It's like, well, it it came out just after the Rwandan genocide. Is it possible that it might be talking about the Rwandan genocide. <laughs> um, and similar with, um, if, you're, if your listeners have kind of read the, the New Jedi Order series that deal with a, with a race called the Yuhus and Vong, who invade the galaxy and um, were originally um, modelled on the Aztecs. They're, they're, a, they're a group of religious fanatics who torture people and they commit human sacrifices, but they uh, are constantly in praise to their gods and um, they view everybody who isn't, Part of them as being infidels as a a civilization to be exterminated and that might have been how they started off being portrayed but the the book that deals with the fall of Coruscant which is um the kind of the galactic capital which is, is created by crashing ships full of civilians into the planetary shields until they collapse and then buildings start exploding and falling down comes out in October 2001. Um I reckon after that point the Image that the readers have of the Hughes and Vong after 9 11 is very, very different to how it was originally intended. You know, that's a coincidence for Star Wars, but you begin to see that manifested through the books. So, you know, the world has changed as we were writing these. And I find all of that just endlessly interesting and endlessly fascinating. But some of it is murky and a little distasteful. Some of the things you are, I suspect, you were, you were su- suggesting uh, in the lead into this question that some of the politics at Star Wars at times can be on the dubious side um particularly in regards to some of its racial politics and some of its depiction of, of stereotypes and the like it can be difficult um and again you know it's it's possible to critique that type of stuff from a standing point of you know this is interesting but we should probably flag up you know some of the ways this is really quite problematic
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely That uh that was a great sort of uh makes me want to read the book, I guess, which is what you need, right? <laughs> Mission accomplished. Uh, so, so is there like a publication date on that or, or still kind of fuzzy? Well,
0: depending on the speed of academic publishing. So what will happen is I will submit this book at the end of the month. Um, it will go out to peer review. That could take weeks. It could take months. Um, if they come back and go, you've done it, Chris. Well done. What a winner. Don't, don't even change a, a comma um i will die of surprise because that's never going to happen um but then there'll be a kind of a deadline of you know getting some edits and that done so you know there is a possibility that this book comes out before the end of the year if not it will probably be early next year but it's not off in the far and distant past anymore as it has been for for a while i mean the only reason this happened is i damn near killed myself over the previous month um writing what I think ended up being close to 60,000 words in 30 days um, to, to get it done and get it finished um, and you know that that broke me in virtually every conceivable way but it, it now means it's it's nearly a thing.
1: As a person who writes many words every week, that is still many 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 words in a month. <laughs>
0: It was I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend, you know, sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do when it comes to wine, but I, w- I wouldn't recommend it. It wasn't it, it, it was a decision taken out of necessity. And also, this is the only clear month that I'm likely to get for the entirety of this year. If I don't use it for this right now, then this book's never going to get finished. Um, so, you know, I, I took it and then I. I got tired and I fell down and now I'm back.
1: Okay, so so maybe book some point in the near or distant future. Who knows? Who knows?
0: I mean, if, if people are interested in other bits of pieces, what, something that I definitely know is coming out in um, October is an official Star Wars book that I helped write called um, Star Wars Battles That Changed the Galaxy, which actually is a military history of the Star Wars universe. I wrote it alongside some actually you know, proper Star Wars authors like um, Amy Radcliffe and Cole Horton and Jason Fry um and it's basically kind of looking at you know the battle of endor and then analyzing it like a military historian would do but all set as if it was in universe and that was just the most wonderful geeky thing i've ever had the joy of doing it made every single one of my christmases um all i've ever wanted to do as a star wars fan was to you know get the opportunity to play a little bit in the world and the the outcome of it is it's a really really beautiful thing so if people are interested in star wars books and they want to kind of read something like that you should definitely buy that when it comes out in october
1: uh the name for that book will be in the show notes if you're curious um excellent well thank you so much for joining me here today and chatting about you know first world war computer games and star wars
0: Thank you very much for having me on. I've got, I, honestly, I've got no idea how much editing you're going to need to, to, to pare this down into something that's actually kind of listenable for a human audience, but I've had a lot of fun.
1: As I tell most of my guests, I don't do any editing. Hooray! <laughs> Goodbye,
0: Farewell, let us It's a long, long way to dip the